potatoes, stout, and whiskey. This week, we're in Dublin, Ireland. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we visit a different foodie hotspot and explore the best things to eat and drink there and give you tips on cool things to do. This week, we're paying a visit to the Emerald Isle and the home of Guinness, Dublin, Ireland. But before we get started with that, let me thank you for being along for the ride on Destination Eat Drink. This is actually our one-year anniversary. We've done 52 episodes of the podcast, traveling all over the world to taste different dishes and learn about all kinds of different places. So thanks for being a part of it. If you're just getting on the Destination Eat Drink bandwagon now, you can go back to DestinationEatDrink.com and all the other podcast episodes are archived there. We visit big cities like Rome and Berlin and small little towns like Savannah, Georgia and Ortizia in Sicily. Few peoples have suffered as much as the Irish in the last 200 years. Oppression, famine, war, they've all left scars. But at the same time, no people have been as resilient as the Irish, whose charm and welcoming spirit touch everyone who visits them. And it's been a long flight to get here, so let's eat. What to eat? Hey, you gonna finish that? On Destination Eat Drink. There's more great places to eat and drink and cool things to do in Dublin, Ireland at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on Dublin for lots more. You might think you're limited to just potatoes and Irish stew when dining in Ireland, but Irish cuisine has undergone this renaissance in the past couple of decades. Celebrity chefs are all over TV talking about modern Irish cuisine to U.S. audiences, and the restaurant in Dublin, The Greenhouse, elevates Irish fare to hip new levels. And lots of Dubliners can afford these high-end eateries. Facebook and Google, they've both got their European headquarters in Dublin, so filling restaurants with cash-rich workers isn't a problem for these fancy restaurants. For me, though, I prefer sitting in a bar with a pint and enjoying some quality pub fare or checking out one of the many vegetarian restaurants that have sprung up recently. Believe it or not, Dublin has become a hotspot for vegetarian dining, a fact that even surprises some locals, or as the cab driver said when we asked to go to a local vegetarian spot, why the F would you go there? Okay, let's talk potatoes. The importance of potatoes to Irish cuisine can't be overstated, and everyone knows about the stereotype of Irish eating lots of potatoes. It's been a staple in the Irish diet for centuries, and the failure of the potato crop along with Britain's draconian food policy towards the Irish led directly to Ireland losing half its population by death and famine and immigration in the 19th century. Ireland's population is still half of what it was before the Great Hunger. Hard to believe. Can you imagine if the U.S.'s population was half of what it was before the Civil War? It's mind-boggling. But potatoes are still popular in Irish cuisine, and Boxty 
is one of the most traditional dishes. It's kind of a potato pancake made using finely grated potatoes, different from a hash brown that has bigger pieces in it. To the finely grated potatoes, you add flour, salt, pepper, butter. It's very simple and delicious, but you won't find boxty on a ton of Irish menus these days. It seems like the locals think of it as more of an old-fashioned dish or something for tourists or something just to eat at home. But there's a couple ways to get boxty when you visit Dublin. The easiest is to go to Gallagher's Boxty House in the Temple Bar section of Dublin. Temple Bar is really the tourist center of Dublin, and it's not a place that I like to spend a ton of time because it is mostly tourists. There's a lot of bachelor parties and bachelorette parties and rowdiness that really isn't as Dublin as Dublin can be. But Gallagher's Boxty House is a good place to show up at to get your box tea. They serve it in pancake form, but also baked and boiled. And the boiled box tea is my favorite. The boiled potato dumplings are something like a gnocchi, but instead of serving them with marinara, Gallagher's serves boiled box tea with honey and pepper sauce. Delicious. Another option is to visit Dublin on February 1st. Not the best time of year weather-wise. It's cold and rainy. But February 1st is St. Bridget's Day in Dublin. The patron saint has a feast day, and it's celebrated by enjoying boxty. Soda bread is deceptively simple. Just have cake or pastry flour, baking soda, salt, and an activator. That's usually buttermilk, but sometimes it's yogurt, sometimes it's even Guinness. And that's it. Somehow, these ingredients create a wondrous carb-rich loaf that's crisp on the outside and chewy on the inside. Lots of people make fun of soda bread, but to me, it's delicious. And most pubs serve soda bread and its cousin brown bread, which is made with whole wheat flour and is sweetened. I especially love the soda bread at Brazen's Heads. A basket only costs $2. It comes with creamy butter from Kerry and soda bread with butter and a pint of Guinness. Nothing better. Check out DestinationEatDrink.com for my other recommendations on where to get good soda bread in Dublin. Ireland's other famous quick bread is Barmbrack, also shortened to Brack. The dough is flattened and shaped into rounds, and raisins are added to the dough. The bread is toasted, and it's served with butter at tea time. Brack is especially popular around Halloween. That's when they bake a ring into the dough. And whoever's lucky enough to get the slice with the ring in it and doesn't accidentally choke on it is said to receive good luck. Lots of bakeries in Dublin sell loaves of brack, many without the ring due to the obvious health concerns. And one of the best places to get brack is the Hansel and Gretel Bakery in Dublin. It's a surprise to find so many great vegetarian options in Dublin, but over the last few years, Dublin has actually become a great vegetarian dining city. The reason, I don't know. Maybe it has to do with all the young tech people coming to work for Facebook and Google in the city, but whatever the reason, Karen and I hike the mile and a half from the other side of the river past St. Stephen's Green to Sova the Vegan Butcher. It's a tiny vegan restaurant in the residential Portobello neighborhood. They started off as just a pop-up in and around Dublin, and now 
they have one of the best vegetarian restaurants in Europe. Sova is one of those places that tries to replicate meat-based dishes. And I'm usually wary of this practice because it so often falls flat. But at Sova the Vegan Butcher, it's a revelation. I have no idea how they do it, but the so-called sirloin has the texture and taste of steak, and the confit potatoes are the perfect complement to their vegan sirloin. I paid for the meal with my credit card, and when the owner tried to hand my card back to me, I fumbled the handoff, and the card spun into the air and fell underneath the table, or at least I thought it did. We looked under the table on our hands and knees and under fellow diners' tables, could not find my credit card. How does the card just disappear into thin air? That's when the owner suggested it could have fallen between the wall and the baseboard. I shook my head. I, I looked at the baseboard. How could a card fly a good three feet in the air and fit into this tiny space behind the baseboard? It didn't look like the gap was the width of a piece of paper, much less a plastic credit card. That's when another diner got down on his knees and took a look. Somehow, he wedged his wiry fingers behind the baseboard and shimmied the card from its hiding place. I was in shock. How'd you do that? He held out his hands with a tight grip like claws as if he was hanging on for dear life. Rock climbing, he told me. Want to drink? I'll have another. On Destination Eat Drink. Have a question or a comment about Destination Eat Drink? Find me on Facebook at Destination Eat Drink or Twitter at Eat Destination or click on the contact tab at DestinationEatDrink.com. Is there any product more closely associated with Ireland than Guinness? The famous brewery started in Dublin more than 250 years ago and shows no signs of slowing down. And drinking a pint or several pints of the dark brew is on the must-do list for many Dublin visitors. People will tell you the Guinness in Dublin tastes so much better than the Guinness you can get in the United States, and they'll tell you it's because Guinness doesn't travel well. In other words, you want to have it close to the source, and you can't get much closer than being in Dublin. But I have another theory, one of my many crackpot theories about food and drink, and it's this. The reason the Guinness tastes so much better in Dublin is because you're in Dublin. There's nothing like being sidled up to a bar, carrying on a conversation with a stranger about who knows what, while enjoying a pint of Guinness. It just isn't the same when you're sitting on your couch watching a football game in your house in the United States. That's what I think makes the Guinness taste so much better. The Guinness Storehouse Tour at St. James Gate Brewery is the busiest tourist attraction in Dublin. People are shuttled through the brewery all day long, every day, to get a look at the process that creates the black gold and to enjoy a little sample of Guinness at the end. If you decide to take the tour, be sure to book online. You'll save yourself 25% compared to the walk-up ticket price. But for my money, the best way to spend your time enjoying a pint is in one of the classic Dublin pubs. Here, you can stand at the bar and will almost immediately get sucked into a conversation with a local. That is, unless you go to Temple Bar, where it's nothing but tourists and stag parties. My absolute favorite pub in Dublin is 
O'Donohue's. Just make sure you go to the correct one. Karen's nephew was supposed to meet us at O'Donohue's, and we're texting back and forth. Where are you? We're here. I'm here. I don't see you. We're in the back. Oh, I'm in the back. Why aren't you here? Turns out he was at the copycat O'Donohue's. The real one is on Marion Row. O'Donohue's has good Guinness, but the real attraction is the nightly music. Musicians sit in a corner. We actually got kicked out of our seats to make room for them and play Irish favorites. We didn't know any of these traditional Irish songs, but it didn't matter because by the time the second verse rolls around, you know all the words and everyone is singing along with the crowd. Bands like the Dubliners and several other famous Irish groups got their starts at O'Donohue's. Another of my favorites is Mulligans. The Guinness tastes incredibly fresh here. I don't know why, except maybe it's because they sell so much of that brown stuff that the kegs are turning over quickly. Mulligans is a great spot to watch a game. We happened to wander in one afternoon just as the Gaelic football final match was starting. I'd never seen Gaelic football before, but it was the national final, and Dublin was playing rival Kerry, looking for their fifth consecutive title. The locals were kind enough to explain the rules to us, and before long, Karen and I were right in the swing, cheering loudly for the home team, Dublin. When regulation of the match ended, the game was tied, so I naturally asked, how long till overtime? The guy next to me said, two weeks. Turns out, if the championship is tied, they play an entire new match two weeks later. Of course, we weren't in Dublin two weeks later, so I streamed the game at home, and yes, Dublin won. On the other side of the river in a part of town that hasn't seen the same level of development as the rest of Dublin is a tiny bar made famous by Irish rebel Michael Collins. It's called the Confession Box, and it's a true locals hangout. Just beware... With the location's history as a safe haven for Michael Collins and other Irish patriots and nationalists, you would be well advised to keep your political beliefs, whatever they may be, to yourself. The Irish and the Scotch have an ongoing whiskey feud over whose tipple is the tops. The Irish will tell you, quite emphatically I might add, that Irish whiskey is superior because it's triple distilled making it a smoother drink than the twice-distilled Scotch version. In the early 1800s, Dublin's distilleries were producing an astounding 10 million gallons a year of Irish whiskey. I I did the math. That's 1.2 billion shots a year. But in the ensuing decades, Scotch whiskey overtook Irish whiskey in popularity, and each of the dozens of distilleries in Dublin shuttered their operations. But there's been an Irish whiskey renaissance over the past few years, and several distilleries have opened in Dublin, many of them offering tours. I prefer sampling my Irish whiskey in a pub. Bo's Pub is my favorite spot for some whiskey. They've got a great selection of Irish whiskeys and hooch from around the world. Sunday night is a great time to visit Bo's. They have an excellent live music performance on Sunday. I've got more Irish whiskey pub recommendations at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on Dublin. It's funny, you know, they don't call them French fries in France. They're palm frites. And in Canada... It's not Canadian bacon, it's just bacon. But in Ireland, if you want a shot in your coffee, you ask for an Irish coffee.
Many an Irish coffee are made with American-style coffee, and there's nothing wrong with that, but my preference is an Irish coffee made with espresso. Add a shot of good Irish whiskey, not the bottom-shelf rot gut, and carefully layer the cream on top to keep it separate from the java and spirit. Lots of places now use whipped cream from a can. You must avoid these places. Sip the Irish coffee so the joe below flows through the cream and into your mouth for optimal flavor. My two favorite places for Irish coffee are the church and the long hall. Things to do and places to see. I don't know. What do you want to do? On Destination Eat Drink. I like talking about and writing about the food and beverages that I try around the world. But when I'm not doing that, I write fiction. Check out my foodie novel, Truffle Hunt, or That Bird, my collection of short stories, at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on the Books tab. Dublin might be the most music-centric city in the world. Sure, more famous musicians have come out of New York or London or L.A., but those cities are so big and have so many other industries present, they dwarf the music scene. But Dublin claims U2 as local heroes. All four members are Dubliners. Bono and Larry Mullen Jr. were born here. Edge and Adam Clayton moved to Dublin with their families as very young children. U2 started out as a punk band called Feedback in 1976. They changed their name and were signed to Island Records a couple of years later. They released their first album, Boy, in 1980. Worldwide success soon followed with classic releases like The Unforgettable Fire and The Joshua Tree. And to date, the band has sold over 50 million records. There's lots of ways to see U2 sites in Dublin. Unfortunately, the walking tour of U2 sites ceased operations a few years ago. But the high school, St. Fintan's, where U2 played their first gig, that still stands. And the Eastlink Bridge, which is featured at the beginning of the Pride in the Name of Love video, is still there. And the Grand Canal docks, you can go there and see where the cover of October was shot. There's also the Little Museum of Dublin. They've got a small display of U2 paraphernalia. A lot of U2 fans head to the Clarence Hotel, where Bono is majority owner. The Octagon Bar used to be a place where members of U2 would hang out. Um, it's not so anymore. You rarely see members of U2 at the Octagon Bar, but that doesn't keep fans from camping out there. Another famous Dublin band was Thin Lizzy. Dubliner Phil Linnett was the bass player, singer, and songwriter for the groundbreaking hard rock band. They're mostly known in the U.S. for their song, The Boys Are Back in Town, but Thin Lizzy released a bunch of albums that were both critical and commercial successes. Thin Lizzy was also groundbreaking in that the band was biracial. Linnett's father was black, and they had both Catholic and Protestant members, something that was a rarity in Ireland during the time of the Troubles. Linnet was an energetic showman, and Thin Lizzy became a popular live act, but the band broke up and Phil succumbed to sepsis brought on by his addiction to heroin and alcohol. He died in 1986. He was only 36 years old, but after years and years of work by his mother, 
There was a Phil Linnet statue that was unveiled in Dublin in 2005. Fans still flock here to pay their respects to the dead rock star. Dublin's most famous native son might be novelist James Joyce. He was born and raised in Dublin, but left the city in his early 20s and lived on the continent of Europe for the rest of his life, dying in Zurich from a perforated ulcer in 1941 at the age of 59. Despite living away from Ireland for almost all of his adult life, Joyce wrote movingly and insightfully about the city of his birth. Two of his best novels are the classics Finnegan's Wake and The Dubliners, but he's best known for Ulysses, a novel that takes place in Dublin over the course of a single day, June 16, 1904. Ulysses is a groundbreaking and experimental stream-of-consciousness novel that today is widely considered to be the greatest novel ever written, even though when it was published, it was banned in many places and faced an obscenity trial in the United States. Every June 16th is Bloomsday, a celebration of Ulysses' main character, Leopold Bloom. Bloomsday is marked with readings from Ulysses and folks retracing some of Leopold's steps described in the book. One of these spots is Swenny's Pharmacy. In Ulysses, Bloom visits here and admires the pharmacy's compounds, eventually taking a bar of lemony wax, a lemon-scented soap. He promises to pay for the bar later, but of course never does. Today, Swenny's holds Joyce readings and hosts Joyce reading groups and you can check their website for the schedule. I've got a link in the show notes. But for a tangible artifact, you can still buy your own bar of lemony wax at Swenny's. They cost five euro. It's really hard not to have a good time in Dublin. Music is coming from every pub. People are very friendly, and lots of things to do will keep you smiling. But Dublin has suffered immensely over the centuries, and learning about some of these dark times in the past help our understanding of today's people. We've been taught that the potato famine in 1845 was due exclusively to the failure of the potato crop. And while this is a factor in the hunger, there are other reasons why Irish starved in the 1840s. One of the main reasons was the British who ruled Ireland at that time. They required Ireland to export massive amounts of grain, livestock, and dairy to England rather than providing relief to the Irish people. If there had been no exporting of food, the famine likely would never have occurred or at least would have been much less severe. The famine lasted four years, and during that time, a million Irish died, another million emigrated to places like England, United States, Australia, and South America. In fact, if you have Irish heritage, the odds are they left Ireland during this time. And there's lots of ways to learn about the Irish experience during the famine. There's the Irish Famine Exhibition. They have a nice film with an overview of the Great Hunger. And then there's EPIC, the Irish Immigration Museum that traces the history of the Exodus. But for me, the Famine Memorial on Custom House Quay is the most moving symbol of the Irish Famine. It was sculpted by Dubliner Rowan Gillespie and shows people dressed in rags 
gaunt from hunger, seeming to trudge somewhere, anywhere to get some relief. Since the sculpture is right on the river, maybe they're heading towards a boat trying to get to America, anything to escape. A dog trails behind him, his ribs showing. He follows the people, hoping against hope that a scrap of food will somehow be thrown his way. The other major event that you need to understand about Ireland is the fight for Irish independence. There were at least 20 rebellions by the Irish against English rule, starting with the Silken Thomas Rebellion in 1534. But the most famous rebellion was called the Easter Rising. Ireland's parliament had been abolished in 1800. And While Ireland had some representation in the English Parliament, the country was ruled from London. Several attempts were made to gain Irish home rule, self-government, but they all failed and resentment by the Irish people was simmering. Most Irish supported home rule, but didn't support going through violent means to get it. But when another Home Rule Bill failed in English Parliament in 1913, some Irish groups began importing arms and organizing paramilitary groups. When World War I started, a lot of Irish served in the British military, and some Irish nationalists came up with a brilliant and strategic plan. They thought, with England busy fighting in World War I, it would be the perfect time to strike. So on April 24th, 1916, the Monday after Easter, over a thousand volunteers, including many women, forcibly took several locations around Dublin. The most famous of these was the General Post Office. Here, Rebel Commander Patrick Pierce read the Proclamation of Irish Independence. The uprising lasted six days before the rebels were forced to surrender to the British. During this time, 500 people died, the majority of them as always in war, were innocent civilians caught in the crossfire or those mistaken as rebels and killed by British troops. Central Dublin was reduced to rubble by the shelling and street fighting, which led to most Irish people coming out against the rebels and siding with the British. That was until thousands were arrested and imprisoned by the British, Trials held in secret and conducted using flimsy evidence. And then on May 2nd, the first of 14 executions took place at the prison Kilmainham Gall. News of the British soldiers randomly shooting civilians in the street, killing pacifist leaders and murdering suspected nationalists and burying their bodies in secret turned public opinion against the British. This public support resulted in a landslide victory for the Sinn Féin Nationalist Party in the election of 1918, and a breakaway Irish government was formed in 1919. Escalating violence led to a war of independence with England, and the Irish prevailed in 1921. But when the British left, a power vacuum was created, and Ireland descended into a civil war that lasted until 1923. There's a lot of places you can visit to learn more about the Irish independence movement, including the General Post Office where Easter Uprising took place. There's a great tour there that includes viewing several artifacts and tells you the complete story of the fight for Irish independence. Kilmainham Gall, the prison where a lot of Irish Republicans were executed by the British, also has an excellent tour. 
You can go inside and see the courtroom where many of the Irish patriots were sentenced to death and the cells where they waited for their ultimate fate. It's a great tour, but you have to book online ahead of time. Space is extremely limited, and the tours almost always sell out. You will almost never be able to walk up and buy a ticket. I've got more great things to do in Dublin at DestinationEatDrink.com, including the famous Book of Kells at Trinity College. Tips and inside information on Destination Eat Drink. Flying into Dublin is easy, but you can also take the ferry from Hollyhead in Wales. It takes about two and a half to three and a half hours, depending on which boat you take. There's also a ferry from Liverpool, but that takes seven and a half hours. And remember, you're in the North Atlantic. Seas can sometimes be rough, and if the weather's bad, the ships don't sail. Those prone to seasickness should avoid the high-speed ferry, as it's usually bumpier than the slower boats. When leaving Dublin and flying back to the U.S., you need to get to the airport extra early because you have to go through U.S. customs at the Dublin airport. This takes a little extra time, but on the plus side, when we arrive at JFK, we land at the domestic terminal and walk right out. No customs or anything on the U.S. side of the trip, which is so nice after a long flight. There are several good day trips to take from Dublin. Kilkenny is a two-hour train ride through the Irish countryside, and the town has a nice castle and some other cool spots. But I like Galway for a day trip. The train ride is two and a half hours from Dublin, and the historic center of Galway is compact and worth exploring. Cross Street Upper is filled with nice restaurants and pubs. My favorite in Galway is Sunny Malloy's, one of Ireland's best whiskey bars. And if you took the train, you can enjoy indulging. No driving. Shops all over Galway sell clatter rings. These rings show love, loyalty, and friendship with a heart surrounded by two hands and topped with a crown. The origin of the Clado rings isn't clear, but the best story is the one that involves Richard Joyce, no relation to James Joyce. Joyce was enslaved by Algerian pirates around 1675, and Joyce's master in Algeria was a goldsmith, so he learned the trade while he was in Tangiers. In 1689, Joyce was released by decree of the English king and returned to his home in Galway, where he is said to have invented the Clada ring. And you will see shops all over uh, Galway selling the Clada rings. They're not very expensive, and it's a nice little souvenir for your trip. If you're planning to go to the Aran Islands, Galway is your jumping-off point. May I suggest that if you're going, don't hop right on the ferry, but spend a day or two in Galway. It's definitely worth it. Then you can hop on your ferry to Inishmore Island. If you're not going to the Aran Islands, you can easily grab a train back to Dublin, and you'll be there in plenty of time to catch some music at O'Donoghue's. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. We drop a new episode each Friday. Join me next week as we visit Christchurch, New Zealand. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla. Big thanks to Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. 
a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.